One of the most hurtful and disabling conditions for someone's life is bipolar disorder. Characterized by episodes of depression and mania, oftentimes pressing someone's life, career, or family to the brink, bipolar is highly complicated and warrants expert management approaches. On this episode of Through the Trees, we sit down with one of those experts, Dr. Chris Schneck of the University of Colorado Department of Psychiatry and the Helen and Arthur E. Johnson Depression Center. We talk bipolar history, treatment approaches, genetics, and cutting-edge research. Stay tuned, as you're about to hear some of the most in-depth science on this topic, one that touches countless lives and is often misunderstood by families and clinicians alike. I'm Pat Failing, and this is Through the Trees. Addiction treatment healthcare is vast territory, much of it having yet to be fully charted. It also is a field with some of the most passionate and interesting of clinicians. Each week, we walk the addiction treatment trails, learning from experts of all backgrounds and specialties. My name is Pat Failing, and I'm an addiction psychiatrist for Cedar in the University of Colorado. You're listening to Through the Trees, the Cedar Addiction Treatment Podcast. Well, this is Dr. Pat Failing, and I'm here as part of the Through the Trees podcast. I'm very excited today to sit down with Dr. Chris Schneck. Uh, Dr. Schneck is a psychiatrist for the University of Colorado Department of Psychiatry, and we are sitting at the Helen and Arthur E. Johnson Depression Center. This is a very advanced clinical center that's part of uh, CU Anschutz and the University of Colorado. And we're going to spend some time and talk about one of the most complex and important psychiatric conditions that we see in healthcare, which is bipolar disorder. So I'm uh, very happy to sit down with you, Dr. Schneck. Thank you for being here. Thanks very much, Pat. So, so Dr. Schneck, uh, you have... I would say probably worldwide expertise in advanced education, research, and treatment of bipolar disorder. Tell us a little of your background. What got you into this in your career? Yeah, well, I had always had an interest in mood disorders. And uh, early on in my career, I was fortunate enough that there was a large NIMH study, a national study called the STEP-BD study, and STEP stood for Systematic Treatment Enhancement Program for Bipolar Disorder, and Colorado was one of the sites, and they needed investigators for that study. And it was through working on that study that I started working with real national and international experts in bipolar disorder, uh, folks like uh, Dr. Gary Sachs at Massachusetts General and Dr. Joe Calabrese at Case Western, and they were folks that uh, helped teach me about bipolar disorder and all of its complexities. Sure. And and then it sounds like you got involved in both clinical care and research of this condition? Yeah, I certainly started out uh, absolutely as a clinician, but then later on began doing research um, with uh, a friend and collaborator, Dr. David Miklowitz, who needed a psychiatrist to help him with his studies. Tell us a little bit of some of the the real conditions. So if, if you had a patient seeking care 
and they thought they had bipolar disorder, like a, a total blank slate, what would you want to know to determine if they had this condition or not? And, and expanding a little bit on what does the condition really, what does it really look like? Yeah, so when we talk about bipolar disorder, one of the principal elements is when patients get either manic or hypomanic. And mania is a mood state in which patients typically feel very euphoric. They also can feel quite irritable. They need very little sleep. They can sometimes go literally for days without sleep. They often will describe having their thoughts race. They'll talk quite quickly to try to keep up with their thoughts. They can become much more impulsive and have behavioral changes. So for instance, they may start spending lots of money. They can have increased sex drive and be sexually promiscuous. They can walk off of jobs impulsively. They can walk out of marriages impulsively. They can also get uh, extremely irritable. They seem to have unlimited amounts of energy. And in its most extreme states, these patients can become psychotic. So they may hear voices. They may feel like they have special powers or gifts, like being able to read people's minds or put thoughts in people's heads or take thoughts out of people's heads. Sometimes they can get what's called referential thinking, where they will feel that the environment or things around them are sending them special messages. So they may watch a television show and feel like that show is speaking directly to them and may change some of their behaviors. So that's in a what's called a fully manic state. And typically those patients end up in a hospital, in an emergency room, or sometimes jail. There's another condition called hypomania, which it has many of those same symptoms, but it's much less, it's attenuated. But nonetheless, the patient clearly feels different and behaves differently during those episodes. And then these patients can also get quite depressed. And in fact, when you look at bipolar disorders over the course of a lifetime, it's really the depression that causes more of the problems for many of these patients than the manias or hypomanias, and it tends to be the more common mood state. Okay, so that's good to know. Do these people have almost like more often depression compared to mania? Yeah, that's right. There's a, a study that was done by Lewis Judd, which showed he followed patients over about 10 years, and these patients had either bipolar 1 disorder, and that's when they have full manias, or they had bipolar 2 disorder, in which patients have episodes of hypomania, but also depression. And what he found over that study was that patients who had bipolar 1 disorder actually had three times as many depressive episodes as they had manic episodes, and patients who had bipolar 2 disorder had about 37 times as many depressive episodes as hypomanic episodes. So despite the fact that we use mania and hypomania to define these illnesses, it's really the depression where the patient spends most of their time and tends to be, unfortunately, the most difficult thing to treat when you try treating these folks. Uh, so, so very fascinating, es especially what you mentioned about the, the mild bipolar, the bipolar 2, you said 37 to 1 ratio of depression to hypomania. Th that's right. And, and actually, you know, I wouldn't necessarily call bipolar 2 disorder a milder form of the illness, okay. although the hypomanic episodes are milder 
if you really look at functionality and how these patients do, it, it really is as severe a disease as bipolar one disorder. Okay, so that's important to know. And and also, do you consider bipolar two actually an outright different condition than bipolar one? We really think about these illnesses much more now on a spectrum. And on one end of the spectrum is major depression, and on the very far end is schizoaffective disorder. So in those patients, they have chronic psychotic symptoms, but also have mood fluctuations. And what we've come to appreciate much more over time is that rather than there just being bipolar 1 disorder, bipolar 2 disorder, there are these things we call bipolar spectrum illnesses in which patients may not meet what we consider the full criteria for either of these diseases, but clearly have mood cycling, clearly have lots of elements of bipolar disorder, but don't meet our somewhat rigid definitions as defined in the DSM as to what is bipolar 1 or bipolar 2 disorder. So we tend to call that, previously we used to call it bipolar disorder not otherwise specified. DSM-5, we now call it bipolar disorder unspecified. I'm imagining if you drew a line, we'd have first classical major depression, next would be bipolar type 2, next would be bipolar type 1, and then the far end would be the schizoaffective yeah, yeah, that's that's right. That would be this line. Yes. Okay. All right. Did your career trajectory line up with our greater understanding of this condition? I think to a degree that there was a big explosion of atypical antipsychotics in the 90s, initially in schizophrenia, and then they drifted into the treatment of patients with bipolar disorder. And what we found was that many patients were helped by using atypical antipsychotics, where previously we had largely lithium, later on davalprox or Depakote, and then the typical antipsychotics. But it was really with the advent of atypical antipsychotics that we were able to expand treatment options, at least pharmacologically. And then there was a growing interest in different kinds of psychotherapies for bipolar disorder. And greater understanding of some of the neurobiology of the disease as well. Expand for us a little bit of what you're talking about when you say atypical antipsychotics. So prior to the 1990s, there were what we call typical antipsychotics. And the most, the very first one was Thorazine or Chlorpromazine, which was developed in the 1950s actually as a sedative agent a pre-op sedative agent for patients about to undergo surgery, and it was a way to calm them down. It was then found that patients who had very severe mental illness, typically psychotic illnesses, benefited from drugs like chlorpromazine. And then during the 60s, there was an increasing number of these drugs, but they all had very significant side effects. They could cause a long-term movement disorder called tardive dyskinesia, they often had lots of side effects like dry mouth and constipation and patients just feeling overall mentally dulled. Uh, they could have muscle contractions and other problems from the drugs. So in the 1990s, there was a rise of drugs that did seem to have antipsychotic effect, but didn't have a lot of the problematic side effects that these earlier drugs had. And because they 
hit different kinds of receptor systems in the brain and yet still seem to work, they got called atypical in terms of how they work. So okay. they also get called second generation antipsychotics. Okay. Yeah. Newer iterations and it sounds like they were more tolerable yes. for an everyday patient. It sounds like the side effects were a big deal. And, with- yes, and side effects continue to be a big deal even with these newer agents. They, I think, overall are better tolerated, and we see far less of this serious movement disorder called tardive dyskinesia with these newer drugs. But they have their own set of problematic side effects like weight gain, uh, oversedation. They can put patients at risk for diabetes and metabolic syndrome and high cholesterol, high lipids, things like that. Okay. Experience the compassionate care of CEDAR, the Center for Dependency, Addiction, and Rehabilitation. Located at the University of Colorado Hospital, we manage complex health needs in addition to addiction. To learn more, visit cedarcolorado.org. Dr. Schneck, tell us a little of some of the history of this in medicine. Which, when was bipolar first really talked about? Well, interestingly, uh, Hippocrates the ancient Greek physician, and we take the Hippocratic Oath, really first described patients being manic or depressed. And a lot of his descriptions are absolutely consistent with modern day descriptions of what mania and depression is. And that was around 400 BC, probably. And then interestingly, in about 100 AD, there was a another Greek physician, Eratheus of Cappadocia, who uh, lived outside of Alexandria, believe it or not. And he was the first to link depression and mania as perhaps being the same disease. Of course, you know, they thought that the cause of these diseases tended to be, you know, things like excess bile or something like that. So very different ideas about what was the cause. Um, And then you have to jump ahead quite a ways to uh, a French physician named Fauray in the mid-1700s who described uh, a circular mood problem. Uh, And he, again, was linking both depression and mania together. And then finally, it was Emil Kreplin, the German psychiatrist in the late 1890s, who really defined a difference between schizophrenia, which he called dementia precox at that time, and bipolar disorder, which was then called manic depression, that they were two separate illnesses. And then you jump ahead farther into the 60s in which there was a better distinction between major depression or unipolar depression and bipolar disorder. Uh, And then finally, you get into more modern conceptualizations where, again, we think about these disorders as being on a spectrum. When was the term manic depressive kind of dropped and and moved over to bipolar? Yeah, you know, that's that's a much more modern phenomenon, I think, in the 70s. For instance, um, I'm looking up at my shelf right now, and one of the major textbooks in bipolar disorder is called manic depression, which or manic depressive illness, which these days one would consider sort of out of step with, you know, how we describe it as bipolar disorder, and why that evolution came about, I'm not exactly sure. Although it made better sense in calling one pole unipolar depression or major depression, 
And then bipolar disorder, it was clearly more descriptive and more medically accurate. So what do we believe is going on in the brain for somebody who has a bipolar condition? Yeah, that's something that um, researchers continue to struggle with. Uh, What we do know is that there's no single area of the brain that is affected. So for instance, you couldn't biopsy somebody's brain and say, oh, they have bipolar disorder. What we think is that it's likely a problem in the way different areas of the brain relate to each other. So what we describe as neural circuitry and how neural circuitry works either normally or abnormally uh, in the brain. And we can best appreciate that with functional magnetic resonance imaging, for instance. So if you just try to look at structural problems in the brain, it's pretty hard to tell that anything's going on. So for instance, we do studies with adolescents where we try to look at adolescent brains who are either normal uh, or have bipolar disorder or are at risk to develop bipolar disorder. And we subject them to a series of faces in the scanner. And these can be happy faces, sad faces, anxious faces, uh, angry faces. And you look to see how their brain reacts. And what we see in, for instance, adolescents who have bipolar disorder is that they have a very reactive part of their brain called the amygdala, which is your fight or flight center, compared to patients who don't have bipolar disorder. And on the flip side, you have these outer structures, typically your dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, um, which helps regulate or control the amygdala. And those areas of the brain seem to be underreactive in kids who have bipolar disorder compared to healthy controls. So what we're reasonably confident is happening is that, again, the circuits between these different centers of the brain don't react normally compared to folks we feel as having healthy moods. So the prefrontal cortex, the part of the brain behind the forehead and the nose, is involved in the physiology of bipolar disorder. Interestingly, it also is highly involved in addiction. Habitual substance use can downregulate the responsiveness of this region. Serving as the brake package for our brain, we need the prefrontal cortex to prioritize our life, say no to some impulses or desires, and help manage our moods. It's no wonder that the combination of bipolar and addiction can be a destructive spiral for some people. You mentioned a little bit about biopsy. Is that true with autopsy as well? Like if if somebody lived uh, a lifelong struggle with bipolar, would you be able to determine that on a a brain autopsy after they passed away? Uh, Interesting question. I I think the answer is clearly no, although... Uh, just because I think that's true with any psychiatric illness, um, that you couldn't necessarily biopsy uh, or do a postmortem examination on a brain and know just by looking at pathology or histopathology, oh, this person has schizophrenia or this person has bipolar disorder. Okay. I do have some patients who seek out advanced imaging clinics that will diagnose their bipolar through an image scan? Is 
Where do you stand on that? Yeah, I was just asked this question the other day in clinic. Um, unfortunately, our technologies are not such currently that you can make any diagnosis using a scanner. And the only way we see these differences in patients is making comparisons between groups of patients and groups of folks who don't have the illness. But at present, there's no way you can put somebody in a scanner and then say, oh, you've got ADD or you've got bipolar disorder, even though there are companies that have set themselves up and made those claims. Uh, I am highly dubious of their motivations. Okay, so that's important to know. I mean, so these are these are clinical diagnoses. These are made through somebody's story. or Yeah, unfortunately, still in psychiatry in this day and age, the only way we can make diagnoses is through a very careful history. I know I'm I'm grilling you with some advanced <laughs> journal hardcore journalism questions here. That's what the that's what the Through the Trees podcast has become. The what do you uh, any thoughts about genetic testing for bipolar? Is there any is that coming or is it valid in any way? Or? Uh, it has a long long way to go. So again, like pretty much every psychiatric illness, we think that the illness is produced really by an accumulation of very small risk genes or risk alleles. And then if you accumulate enough of these, you end up with an expression of the illness. Now those can be counteracted by having protective genes. And you know it's interesting, for instance, when you look at twin studies in bipolar disorder, so here you have identical twins, they have exactly the same genetics, and yet you see about 70% concordance rate. In other words, 70% of the time, those kids will have bipolar disorder, but what about that 30%? So something's going on when you have all the risk genes and somebody doesn't develop the disease, and that probably speaks to the impact of environmental factors and stress and things like that. Uh, but you know, perhaps in the future there'll be some ability to have genetic testing for bipolar disorder, but right now it, it, it's not true, unfortunately. Okay, so that's pretty advanced, but that's important to know. I, I know we had a prior radio show where we talked about cannabis with Dr. Hopfer, and that came up, the nature of using cannabis as being a risk factor for developing a major mental illness, but not necessarily. So there just seems to be, what, stress on the brain? or Yeah, yeah. And, and by the way, that's not to say that genetics aren't enormously important in bipolar disorder because we know that if you have a parent, for instance, with bipolar disorder, the child has about a tenfold increased risk of having bipolar disorder. Okay. So uh, there is a large percentage of genetic transmission. And in fact, we've the studies that I've been involved in, which have been what we call high-risk studies, where we're looking at adolescents who have a first-degree relative who has bipolar disorder and the child's developing mood symptoms, we know that if they have a parent who has bipolar disorder and the child is developing mood symptoms that are consistent with bipolar disorder, their chance of having fully expressed bipolar illness in five years is almost 60%. Okay. So there's a very large genetic load with this illness. So that's kind of a, that's like a, a Bayes theorem situation. You have a parent with bipolar, so you have a tenfold risk based on that, and then you have some early signs of symptomatology with the kid. 
Yes. So when you combine those together, you said it's about 60%. That over five years that they'll convert. Years. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Are there situations in which somebody will present as bipolar, they will, it will resolve, and they won't really have any problems over the rest of their life? You know, that is a really interesting question because I think we used to feel that if you get diagnosed with bipolar disorder, you definitely have it for life. Um, but there is a question for when these kids, for instance, develop bipolar disorder, is there a chance they can, you know, quote unquote, grow out of this? And I was at a conference a couple years ago in which one of the speakers, I think in a very compelling way, argued that there may be a percentage of these kids, in fact, that do have better trajectories and don't necessarily end up with the disease. Uh, the studies that I've been involved in most recently have been these high-risk studies in which we're interested in can you intervene early in the course of the disease and change the trajectory of the illness the study that we've been doing uh, looks at a particular kind of psychotherapy, although two-thirds of those kids also were on medications because their illnesses were pretty severe. But we are curious to know if you intervene early with the psychotherapy, do you improve the outcome? Can you actually ward off the disease? We don't know yet. And we're also doing scanning of these kids to see can you make changes in their brain ultimately using this kind of psychotherapy? What do you guess? What do you what do you think you'll find? You know, I, I'd like to think that it does make a difference. And in an early pilot study we did, it did seem to make a difference. It was a shorter study. So we've done a much larger study. It's a three-site study, UCLA, Stanford, and Colorado. And we followed families and kids for anywhere from two to four years, and we're just looking at the data now, so we will have a better sense of hopefully our intervention did did provide some benefit. And what is the style of psychotherapy that you're talking about? So in this particular study, it was a kind of therapy called family-focused therapy, which, as it sounds, does, uh, involves the whole family. But what we know is that when you educate families about the disease, when you educate the child about the disease, when you try to improve communication within a family, when you try to help them solve problems so that there's not as much stress and strain in the family. Uh, we know that, that folks with bipolar disorder do better in those circumstances. So this was a therapy developed by David Miklowitz, who used to be at Colorado, is now at UCLA. He originally did it in adults with bipolar disorder, and it clearly showed it was helpful. And then we did a study in adolescents who had bipolar disorder. The results, truthfully, were mixed in that study. And then it's since been modified to look at kids at risk for bipolar disorder. So with, a, with this family-focused therapy, I wonder if is some of the goal to try to almost alleviate emotional chaos in the household, like just calm down the household? To... That, that's exactly right. I mean, and, and, it's, and it's most fundamental. Yeah, we look at a thing called expressed emotion. And expressed emotion is defined as interactions between family members that are considered um, hostile, aggressive, 
uh, demeaning. And just like with anyone, those things amp up your emotions. And there are ways we can teach families to communicate more effectively where you lower the overall expressed emotion, you lower the negativity, you improve the way people talk to each other within a family, and you have improved outcomes. So that's really at the core of family-focused therapy. Sure. Well, very fascinating. That sounds like that's going on right now. That's very cutting-edge science for bipolar treatment. I, I think so. I think the, the main issue is trying to teach more clinicians about specific therapies for bipolar disorder. There's a psychologist here, uh, Dr. Amy Sullivan, who is an expert in family-focused therapy. She actually received a grant from the Caring for Colorado Foundation to, in fact, teach other clinicians around the state about family-focused therapy. So hopefully we have more and more clinicians who can use these techniques to improve outcomes. Sure. Chris, what do you see in the world of substance use connected to bipolar? Yeah, it's an enormous problem. Um, the, The two greatest comorbidities in bipolar disorder are anxiety disorders and substance use disorders. And about 60% of bipolar patients have a substance use disorder. Bipolar 1 patients have it more often than bipolar 2 patients. Men with bipolar disorder have it more often than women with bipolar disorder. And it definitely worsens the outcome of the illness. It makes treatment much more complicated. It makes the course of the illness much more complicated. It doesn't necessarily follow in the manner that you might expect. So there's this notion of self-medication and it does it's not necessarily consistent with this idea of self-medication uh, of the disease so for instance if you had a manic patient you might expect that person to use more downers alcohol for instance to try to lower sure, to their, kind of calm their brain down exactly and and we don't see that in fact when patients are manic they tend to use more drugs like cocaine like amphetamine Um, you know, things that are going to really speed them up. And when they're depressed, more often they're using alcohol and marijuana. So uh, again, it's hard to know when the disease gets worsened by substance use, is it because of the actual substances they're using versus the effects of the drug? For instance, suddenly they're not sleeping. And we know that a patient who doesn't sleep, their mood will worsen. Uh, so if you're using lots of stimulants, there's something probably about the drug itself, but also now they're not sleeping and it's kicking off more of their bipolar symptoms. And I'm sure this makes for a very complex diagnostic choices. You have somebody who is coming into clinic, they might have a cocaine problem and they have a mood problem. And then they say, doc, what's my struggle? And do you find it, are you able to tease out some of the nuances to make a bipolar diagnosis amidst kind yeah, of it's, chaotic substance use too? Is it, there must be it's, some ways, it's, I guess. Well, it's really, really difficult um, because if a patient is using, for instance, a stimulant, it can absolutely mimic most, if not all, symptoms of mania. And what you try to do in your history taking is find out if there's any clear delineation of when they weren't using substances and did they have the kinds of mood symptoms that 
we think are consistent with having bipolar disorder. The other way that we try to refine the diagnosis is talking to family members or loved ones who have known them over a long period of time and can describe a time when they clearly weren't using substances and yet continued to have these kinds of mood problems. Sure. We see this oftentimes at CEDAR because I think one of the things that makes CEDAR unique for addiction treatment around the country is a full staff of psychiatrists. And that's not common in dedicated addiction centers. And we were oftentimes called on to make a diagnosis of bipolar to consider a medication approach for somebody who's also detoxing from substances. So we're trying to help them almost like recover on two battlefronts. Yeah. And um, the fact that you have psychiatrists there, I think is enormously helpful since they have the range of knowing what these diseases look like without substance use disorders that are co-occurring. So that's helpful. Do you think there's any risk in erring on the side of treatment? Aside, from, I know we have side effect risk, but if you have somebody who you're on the fence about whether or not they have bipolar, would you treat? Like, would you offer treatment for a person? Yeah, I would. I, I, I think you're looking at risk benefit. And while, as you know, we talked about earlier, these a lot of these medications do have side effects, there are a number of patients who take these medications and and tolerate them exceptionally well. And if they do have an underlying mood disorder, to try to treat their substance use disorder without treating the underlying mood disorder is going to be enormously difficult. So yeah, I think in in those cases, it is worth trying to treat them and then follow them over time and see how things go. Sure. In your opinion, do you have any favorite med approaches? Like what what do you really like to use with patients that you're treating? I would say this, that if a patient came into the office and clearly has bipolar 1 disorder, had never been on a medication, uh, my first choice generally is lithium. Lithium is really the gold standard treatment, in my opinion, for bipolar 1 disorder. It has certain qualities that no other medication has. Uh, It does have some anti-suicidal properties. It can increase cortical gray matter, which we think is a good thing, certainly. Um, And it seems to be one of the few drugs that likely can treat all three phases of the illness. And what I mean by that is it can treat mania, it can treat depression, and it can prevent future episodes. Because one of the problems with treating bipolar disorder is because you have these three different aspects of treatment, it's why many patients end up on multiple medications because it's hard for a single drug to treat all three of those aspects of the disease. And then if you throw in that they have a comorbid illness like anxiety, you typically have to use another medication to try to treat that. So lithium comes closest, I think, to doing all those things. Mm, okay. And then in addition has some, some properties that other drugs don't have. It sounds like lithium has has yet to be defeated for bipolar management. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, despite the fact it's really the oldest treatment we have in bipolar disorder, it was FDA approved, I think, in 1970. It's, it's still a very effective treatment for a lot of patients. And again, you know, it, it can be a difficult drug for some patients to take. You have to monitor their kidney function. You have to monitor their thyroid. It can cause a tremor in some folks. 
uh, and it is extremely dangerous in overdose. So uh, you have to keep all those things in mind. Dr. Schneck, do you feel like there are any important myths about bipolar that you'd like to debunk? I think one of the biggest ones is uh, patients should know that it is very treatable and uh, we are getting better at refining our treatments of the disorder and we are getting better at refining psychotherapies and medications. So it's when you first diagnose somebody with bipolar disorder, it's an exceptionally scary diagnosis to hear, uh, but it certainly can be well managed and well treated uh, with with good care. When you when you say good care, meaning a combination approaches, medication and counseling. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we we know that the best outcomes are clearly achieved when you have a mix of medications and psychotherapy for most patients. And there's always exceptions to that, but uh, combining the two is is really an important uh, element of treatment. And as I said, there are specific kinds of psychotherapies for bipolar disorder, not just family-focused therapy, which I've been involved with, but there's cognitive behavioral therapies, there's mindfulness-based therapies that are specific for bipolar disorder, um, an important kind of therapy called interpersonal and social rhythm therapy, which looks at what we call social rhythms, which is patients' routines during the day, which can really help regulate patients' mood when they have set sleep times, set wake times, get physical activity, have regular social contact. Those things are enormously important in acting as mood stabilizers. Almost as if you are teaching somebody to be a better caretaker of themselves. Yeah, and 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 really understand their illness and the nuances of their illness, what things likely make their moods worse, what things make them better. It's what you know we call relapse prevention planning to really understand for you as a specific individual, what are your early warning signs that your disease is worsening and what are the strategies that you have that work best for you to try to ward off a mood episode. So, so very useful and, and a patient-centered care approach. Yeah, that's right. For that. That's exactly right. Are there ever times that you see somebody in clinic who comes in and describes having bipolar disorder and you think they in fact do not have a bipolar condition? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, just as we talked about earlier, sometimes it's because really they have a substance use disorder that's blurring the picture. There are personality disorders that can, in many ways, have a lot of the same symptoms as bipolar disorder, certainly borderline personality disorder, in which a patient can have great mood liability, impulsivity, that can often sound initially like bipolar disorder, and it often takes a while to try to really understand the patient's history to decide do they or do they not have bipolar disorder. Okay. Uh, Dr. Schneck, this was very fascinating, and I think we talked about some of the history around this condition. We talked a little bit about treatment recommendations and how you guide patients, even some new cutting-edge research that is that is coming up. What do you see 
over the next couple decades? Do you think are we at a some sort of a precipice for even greater understanding of this condition? Well, I, I certainly hope so. I think that we are moving in the direction of being able to use some tests to make a diagnosis of bipolar disorder and try to differentiate it from, for instance, major depression. I'm hoping that pharmacogenetic testing will advance so we have a better idea of what drugs will work for a particular patient. And uh, perhaps we're getting closer to getting a better sense of would genetic testing aid us in the diagnosis of bipolar disorder. Well, very good. So uh, once again, uh, I'm Dr. Pat Failing. Uh, this is our Through the Trees podcast. I'm sitting down with Dr. Chris Schneck and talking about pretty advanced things in the realm of bipolar disorder and treatment. Uh, Dr. Schneck, thank you so much for joining us on this show. Well, thanks very much for having me. Really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Through the Trees, the Cedar Addiction Treatment Podcast. Please visit cedarcolorado.org for a wide array of educational content about the disease of addiction and the science of recovery. If you or a loved one are considering Cedar and the University of Colorado Hospital for treatment, please speak with our admissions team at 720-848-3000. Cedar the Center for Dependency, Addiction, and Rehabilitation, helping people build a life of recovery.